We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of John, and we are in John chapter 4, one of the familiar passages of the Scripture as our Lord encounters the Samaritan woman, or the woman by the well. Our text this Lord's Day is chapter 4, verses 16 through 26, but uh, I think it'd be good to gain a little context. I'm going to skip down to chapter 4, verse 3. He left you, speaking of Jesus, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Last week we saw our Lord was on a mission. 
And I, and I talked about the fact he had a divine appointment. You notice that spirit, he, he needed to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. He didn't. He, caught a, he was on his way to Galilee. He did not need to go to Samaria. There were three different routes he could have taken. Two would have avoided Samaria, and many Jews would have chosen that to avoid Samaritans in Samaria. But, but when it says he needed to go to Samaria, I take that as a divine necessity, a divine assignment, because he had a divine appointment. He wanted, he needed to meet the Samaritan woman. He began the meeting with a simple request, may I have some water please? That led to a waffer, uh, an offer of water that would never fail and would ultimately and fully satisfy of course, that's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Uh, the woman didn't understand that, but, but Jesus is doing what he did to Nicodemus. He's using, um, figure, he's using day-to-day things, drinking water, giving birth, and, and comparing them to spiritual truth. Well, when he offered living water... Um, he was offering eternal life and the work of the Holy Spirit that would satisfy. So, of course, the woman requested, well, then, sir, give me this water that, that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And I mentioned last time I was struck by the fact and it was challenged this time reading through and studying how she kept using that word, sir. And literally, that's the word Lord. But she's not calling him God, but, but she's speaking respectfully. She didn't begin that way. You know, you're, you're a Jew. What are you asking me, a Samaritan, for water? But very quickly, she starts speaking respectfully. She's gathering. He has something to say and something to offer. And so she says, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to drink, to draw. Now, she was still missing the point. Like when, Jesus, when Nicodemus said to Jesus, So wait a minute. How am I supposed to go back? into my mother to be born a second time. What do you mean born again? Well, Jesus was talking about being born again. He wasn't talk about, talking about being born again. He was talking about spiritual birth, not physical birth. And here he's talking about water, but he's not talking about water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Reminds me of John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. I think I mentioned this last time. On the last day... Uh, Jesus, a day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when he's offering this living water, he's talking about the Holy Spirit who gives eternal life, who who regenerates, and then who satisfies. Much better than water. So when the woman says, "Well, well, give me this water. Give me this water that will never fail. And Jesus then says to her, go call your husband and come here. Now a lot of times we read that and say, wow, that's changing subjects quickly. Um, you know, it's kind of like if someone you know, maybe asked you an awkward question or something, and so you'd say, well, what do you think about the Cowboys this year? <laughs> well, we know what about the Cowboys. They're going to fail again. But, but aside from that, um, 
That's, yeah, whoa, that's a change of gear. What, but Jesus isn't changing the subject. He's driving home the subject. Because to receive the Holy Spirit's ministry, she needs salvation. And to receive the Savior, she needs to see her need of the Savior. And so he asks her, go call your husband and come here. Now again, Jesus uses his wisdom and, and skill. He doesn't just say, let me tell you, woman, I know all about you. Uh, you have a, a history uh, that's a, a shame, and you're an immoral woman. He doesn't, he, he just, instead, he just says, go get your husband. And that's all it takes. The first step in coming to this water that satisfies, this eternal water, this satisfying water, is first to recognize my real need. He's not talking about real water. And he is talking about the real need of the heart. The first step in that eternal satisfaction is to understand the need of a savior. To understand my own sin. The gospel is essentially an issue of sin and forgiveness and reconciliation to God. So he, he, she said, give me this water to drink. And, and Jesus replies, well, well, go get your husband. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. I, I noticed something. If you follow through and read through this, these encounters already, most of the time the woman has been rather verbose. You know, she has a lot to say, a lot to say, a lot to say. You Jews and we, you know, all this sort of thing. Go get your husband. In the Greek, she has, it's a three-word answer. I have not, basically, kind of thing. I think, of the, what is it in the English? I have no husband. Four words. Sometimes, have you ever noticed when you're talking to someone, all of a sudden you get a very curt answer? Normally, everything's really chatty and you're maybe talking on the phone or something. How are you doing today? Fine. Now, husbands of experience, for example, know that instantly means things are not fine. And so it's time to go fishing. <laughs> okay, what, I mean, not, well, that's one option is to go fishing, but the other option is to go fishing. <laughs> oh, so what's not fine about fine? <laughs> um, so when she, I have no husband, that's kind of a, you can tell, let's, oh no, we're not going there. So Jesus' response has two messages. Uh, first, it shows her need of a savior. And secondly, it shows who the savior is. Can you imagine this, this woman? She knows she's talking to a Jew. He's not from here. Uh, you know, people in Samaria knew, in her town, Sychar, knew her um, too well. It was kind of embarrassing. She had a situation in her, you know, she had a history and a situation in life that um, people kind of avoided her. Or maybe she heard them look, she saw their looks and heard their whispers and knew they were talking about her. But if you went through Sychar, they knew who she was. But a Jew coming in who's a total stranger 
can sit at this well. First time she's ever laid eyes on him and first time he's ever seen her and he starts telling her her history. You're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five. You've had five marriages. Now we're not told what happened to them. Was it divorce? Was it death? Um, and, you're, and now you're living in, in immorality. Now you're living with a man who's not your husband. Now again, many people in Sychar could have told her that. But this was a Jew who knew nothing of the area. And so she realized he has supernatural knowledge. So Jesus' answer does two things. It stirs an awareness and brings to the front a sin issue. Can you have to have a sin issue to need the Savior? If you're going to come and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior... So that you might, that's what you need to do to get the, the water that satisfies. So he's bringing up the sin issue to show her her need. But he also shows, he starts pointing to the fact that he's the answer by showing he's not just a, a thirsty Jew who's in need of some water. And she gets it right away. And she says in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Notice, she doesn't exactly engage his comments. You have five husbands. The one you're with is not your husband now. Rather, though, she does say, um, I know you're a prophet. I see you're a prophet. So what she's saying, in in the Greek it says, bingo. (laughs) Um, You know it. That's spot on. You must have divine knowledge. You must be a prophet because you know my story without having seen it. So she right away is acknowledging and and that's a troubling thing to a guilty conscience to know that you're looking someone in the eye who knows all that you've done. For example, in in this day and age of... of, um, surveillance cameras someone may mention something to you oh I, I you know did you do this and someone may go into a, a type of denial and they say well would you like me to pull up the camera bingo <laughs> you have a, you have the whole story right in front of you but this camera goes not just to externals it goes straight to the heart sir again that respect that's what I'm saying. I think, I think right early on, uh, her attitude is changing. He's not just this obnoxious Jew. Sir, sir. Now she uses the same label when she says, I perceive you're a prophet. That's, a, that's, a, that's an exalted term. And it says you have knowledge that mere men don't. Well, Jesus... Has doing, is doing a great job of plowing the field for his planting of the harvest. He's prepared her in two areas. He's raised to the surface a reminder of her sin. And he's brought to her awareness that he comes as a representative of God. He's a prophet. He speaks for God. Well, then she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So, if you're a prophet, 
and you have divine knowledge, I'd like to talk about the worship wars that have been going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, it's a, it's a genuine question. And it's reasonable. If you have a prophet, um, you know, maybe sometimes you have an issue like uh, you, you meet someone and, and um, find out that uh, he's a mechanic who spends his whole life working on exactly your car. And you've just noticed you're having an issue. You might say, oh, can I ask you a question about my car? And of course, a lot of times uh, physicians will tell you that's a real, when someone finds out they're a doctor, all of a sudden, you know, I've got this sake. I've got a question about, you know God? I mean, you're a prophet for God? Boy, the key question we've already kind of addressed here at this well is Jew, Jew Samaritan, where is the right place to worship? So it sounds like it's a defensive question. I think it's sincere. But it kind of reminds me of Nicodemus. When he came, he wanted to talk about religion. A teacher, rabbi, we know that you come from God or you couldn't do these miracles. And she's saying, I know you're a prophet from God. Let's talk about religion. A little less personal, but still an important issue. Now, by the way, I should probably set some background so we understand. Samaritans, Jews, there's a big issue. Where do we worship? Uh, first question is, who are the Samaritans? Uh, those are the people who live in Samaria. Moving on. <laughs> uh, we could go back in a lot, but you might re- I'll just remind you, Israel came into the land after they, out of, they left Egypt. They were brought into the land. They conquered the land. They, they distributed the land into tribes. And eventually God raised up a king. First Saul, who's a failure. Then King David and King Solomon. After King Solomon, Solomon's son came along and he blew it. And and the nation split north and south. Ten tribes to the north. Two tribes to the south. The, The northern tribes never once had a godly king. The southern tribes had godly and ungodly kings. Eventually God... As he said, and he promised, if you keep disobeying me, I'll send you this, I'll send you this. Eventually, I'm going to take, take you off into exile. And so about 700 B.C., the Assyrians came and conquered the northern tribes. The nation, that's, that was called the nation of Israel now. It was now Israel and Judah. And, and now, one of the problems when you conquer a nation is how do you keep them from rising up in rebellion? The Babylonian strategy, just clear everybody out of land, so except for a few poor people. A few poor people. Leave the land empty. The Assyrians had a different strategy. Here's what we'll do. We'll take a lot of your people out and we'll bring a lot of other conquered peoples into your land. And so you're going to lose your national identity because who are we? Oh, we're Israelites. Oh, no, we're not. We're from uh, Edom. We're from uh, Elam. We're from these lands. And so they have no, they don't, they they had to probably struggle to what's, what language will we speak? What is our culture? What is our religion? And so they just kind of wipe out. And here's this mixed people that have no identity. They can't unify and rebel. So that's the Samaritans. They're the fruit of that. And because of that, they were not genetically, they were, they were uh, intermingled and intermarried. They were no longer uh, true Jews in that sense. But also their religion became highly compromised. Now, eventually, they were, they kind of said, a lot of the foreigners said, we're having problems. Maybe we should worship the God of the land. You guys tell us what the religion here is. They actually have a Pentateuch, and that's the only Bible they believe. They don't believe in the rest of the Bible. 
not Psalms, Proverbs, not the Kings, Samuel. But it's kind of, but one of the distinctions was after that, they were back and in the land, the Babylonian exile happened, the exile returned about 500 BC, let's say. And the Jews wanted to rebuild the temple. So the Samaritans came and said, hey, let's get together on this. And the Jews said, no way. You aren't Jews. You have, your, your religion is, is distorted. You, no, you can't join us on this. That led to hostility. The, the Samaritans built their own temple about 400 B.C. on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Uh, and the Jews had their temple on uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so it was constant conflict. Well, the Jews were so offended by the Samaritan temple that about 100 B.C. or 130 B.C., uh, they went over and destroyed the Samaritan temple. The Jews came and destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim and said, this is an idolatrous, blasphemous thing. We're going to wipe it out. And they did. So from then on, the Samaritans have no temple there. But they still worship on Mount Gerizim. There are a few Samaritans left. When I was in Israel, the population of Samaritans was less than a 1,000. But they still worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Um, Matter of fact, one time I was in there and and met some Samaritans. And uh, they actually invited me to join them uh, up on the mountain in a sacrificial worship thing. I wasn't able to do it. But so they're still there. And they're, they're doing sacrifices and worshiping on Mount Gerizim in their way. So here's the difference. The Jews say, that's blasphemous. God said there's only one place to worship. The Samaritans said, you're right, it's here. So there, there was this conflict. But now we have a prophet who, who's shown he knows God's truth because he could read a heart. And so that's why she asks, um, where is the right place? But also... Sometimes it's easier to talk about religion than about me. Well, Jesus answered her in verse 21 and 22. Jesus said to her, woman, and again, that's just as respectful as saying sir to him. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So he, he addresses her question and basically says, it's, it's really not a, not a significant issue because it's just going to go away shortly. In AD 70, the, the Jewish temple is destroyed. But more importantly, after the resurrection, when Christ establishes his church, then it doesn't, we're not bound to any one place of worship. We're not bound to a temple. So he says, you know, really, that's an issue. And in fact, he knows that Jesus is rather direct. Well, since you asked, you're wrong. <laughs> the Jews are right. Um, in fact, he even makes a bold statement. Salvation is of the Jews. The worship of the Samaritans, the religion of the Samaritans will not save you. Salvation is of the Jews. That's rather striking. 
there's, uh, throughout history, there's, all, there's, there's often a trend of, let's all just get along. In a lot of religions, oh, you worship a different God? That's fine. One more God, just bring him on in. We'll, we'll, we'll make room for him on the shelf. Remember in Athens when Paul was there and he was just, here, here, here he was raised a Pharisee and a Jew and he saw all these different uh, temples and altars and, and it, just, it just sickened him. I thought of that when I've spent time in Nepal and you, know, you can't go, I don't think you can go a block without seeing some kind of a little altar. And, and it's kind of interesting because it becomes a terrible nightmare traffic wise because once a t- an altar has been established or a little place of worship, it can't be moved. So you'd be right here right in the middle of a road, altar. Uh, why is that there? Because someone put it there. And there it is. And, and they may not know, you know, uh, the, the only, what's the, is, who's being worshipped? There's just a rock in there. Okay. But, but no, it's, I got this feeling everywhere you go, everywhere you go, um, grievous idolatry. Grievous idolatry. Um, in our culture, more and more, we, we just we don't want to be so offensive and say, well, actually, well, growing culture, postmodernism and, and such, there is no right and wrong. There is no absolute. Um, again, we've talked about this concept. Well, that's your truth. You will notice, I don't know of a translation out there that Jesus says to her, um, you guys have your truth and we have ours. Let's be friends. Join my hand. Join, let's join hands and we'll sing Kumbaya. No, he, he, he says, you are wrong. Your religion will not save you. And in case there's any confusion, if you just skip down a few chapters, ten chapters later, Jesus will also say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's very exclusive. That's not unloving. The most loving thing you can tell someone is, that won't work. This will. You are on the wrong path, and the end result is eternal disaster. But I can tell you the true path, the right path, the path of eternal life. And that's Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ says, you're wrong. And you should understand that salvation is of the Jews. And that, what he's saying is, that doesn't exclude everyone else, but it will come through the Jews. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. When God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, through Abraham would come a savior. Through Abraham would come the scriptures. Through Abraham, the plan of salvation is revealed, and ultimately the Messiah comes through Abraham. That's your first clue. There's different ones that'll come along and say, you know, um, I'm the Messiah. Uh, Reverend Moon of, of, of Korea, for example, claimed to be the Messiah. You can check out the genealogies. He is not a descendant of Abraham. He's not the Messiah. Through Abraham 
comes salvation, but to all the nations. Through the, through the chosen people are the channel of blessing for all the nations. But it's through the chosen people. And so at this time in, in history, in Jesus' time, the right place to worship? Jerusalem. Sacrifice offered anywhere else and in any other way was blasphemy. And now we would say the place to worship is anywhere, but it has to be in Jesus Christ. Well, we'll actually he'll develop that. I just want to make one other comment, though. Notice, I'm impressed, and I was struck by this reading along, and I've highlighted in my Bible how often the word Father appears. Notice how he said that. Woman, believe me, uh, in the hours coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Jesus uses that term a lot in John, usually speaking of God as his Father. But in other places, like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, he keeps talking about the Father. That shows you, uh, that, that takes a view of God in our relationship. See, he's emphasizing relationship with God. That's that soul satisfaction. Not just religious ritual, a relationship with the living God. And that's one of the distinctives. Now, when we have the Seder next month, uh, you will, I will recite the Hebrew prayers, the, some of the Hebrew prayers that are used during the Seder. And you could probably, some of you have been off often enough, you could quote them. For example, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaBorei Pari HaGafen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth uh, the fruit of the vine. Do you notice the word Father isn't in there? Lord, God, King of the universe. When Jesus met with his disciples and they said, would you teach us to pray? What did he say? Our Father. When Jesus was dying on the cross, Abba, Father. That is both an exaltation, but also it, 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 it expresses the intimacy. So often you can hear when someone, I'll, I'll hear someone give an official, you know, a prayer at some event, and when they start talking, oh, almighty God, and I start wondering, do they really know him? Now, I'm not saying you can't call him Almighty God. But Jesus said, call him Father. Reminds me of the story. There was a, have you ever noticed sometimes ministers can kind of go on and on, not just in sermons, but even in prayers. One time this old guy, this guy was going on and on in his prayer. And, and finally this little, this was in Scotland, I guess, this old lady in the choir loft actually reached over tugged a couple times on his gown and said, just call him father and thank him for something. <laughs> Let's get on with this. So, but notice how Jesus is saying, she's, where's the right way to worship? And he's saying, eh, it's not going to be about where, but already he introduces the concept of almighty God as father. Interestingly, Romans will tell us when we, and Paul tells us in Galatians and Romans, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is, is he, he, the spirit of adoption says that we now, now we know that we can call him Abba, that's the Hebrew Aramaic expression, Father. 
And so he, he says, the day is coming when you will worship him as father. Now, so verses 23 and 24, Jesus continues with the essential issue of worship. The hour is coming now is when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking those such to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so the issue isn't location. The issue is he, he speaks of two issues, spirit and truth. Now, I checked most translations, and if you look at your translations, I think most of you will see the word spirit there is not capitalized. Um, now, th- that's just an English thing. That's a translation, translator's decision. Uh, in the original Greek, it was all capitalized. <laughs> so, but but, but it, it's, I think the best understanding, that's small s. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit of the heart. We're going to worship him in and with our spirit Because it's not about the building. It's not about the externals. And this was a battle Jesus constantly was having all through his ministry of three years. The Jews of his day externalized religion. Have you got the appropriate garments on? Have you eaten and avoided the right foods? Have you said, recited the right prayers? Have you fasted on the right days and in the right one? It's all about do, do. Have you washed your hands in the correct way? They externalized religion. It's all about doing to earn God's approval. And he's saying it's not about externals. It's not about a place. It's not about ritual. It's an act of the spirit, of the heart. And so he'll say in the the Beatitudes, blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Those aren't doings. Those are beings. That comes from the heart. And so he said, you must worship in spirit. Now, the one problem is you can have a heart that's still not born again. And so another mistake, in those days they emphasized externalism, right ritual. Did you see the article? I was rather struck a Roman Catholic priest. It was discovered when he did the baptism uh, in about 30 different cases, he got one word wrong. And so the, they decided those babies were not uh, officially baptized. Uh, any one of them who married, the marriage doesn't count. Uh, so they weren't born again, they weren't regenerated because they didn't get rightly baptized because he got a word wrong. That's called externalism. In our day, we don't we won't emphasize externalism nearly as much, but we emphasize Emotion. Oh, I felt so worshipful. But you know, lots and lots of religions have lots and lots of emotion. I won't get real graphic, but I could show you and talk to you about some of the Muslim settings and some of the extremely ecstatic uh, rituals they have, in particular honoring one of their prophets. Oh, it's very emotional. But that doesn't mean it's, it's truth. So when he's talking about the spirit here, he's, t- he's coming from the heart, but here he's talking about a renewed spirit, a born-again spirit, a spirit that's been born from above. He's saying to her the same thing he said to Nicodemus. True worship requires a regenerated spirit. 
In Ephesians, we're told that we all are sinners and dead in our sin. We need God, the Holy Spirit, to make us alive. And so unless you have a renewed spirit, you cannot worship God because he's spirit. He's not a building. He's not a rock. He is a spirit. And so to commune with him, which is what worship ultimately is, we must worship with him in spirit. But if our spirit's dead, you can't worship with him. We need a born-again spirit. So you must worship him in spirit, a spirit that's been born anew, and truth. So true worship must be biblical worship. Uh, We must worship the true God and must worship according to scriptural truth. Again, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So again, we're not all on different paths to one God. There's only one path, Jesus said. And it's a path of truth. And again, that is so contrary to our culture that says, your truth, my truth. Jesus said, I'm truth. Meaning there is no other. I am the truth. There's no other truth. There's no other way. And so it's not about religious fervor. It's not about religious sincerity. One of the theologians that sometimes I follow is the, uh, the Peanuts cartoons. And Charlie Brown had one of these epiphanies, if you will. I, I, don't, I guess he never won a baseball game. You know, and, 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 and they went in, and, and, he, and he, they were just devastated by the opponent. And, and he makes a comment at the end. But we were so sincere. And they still lost. Well, actually, that's great theological truth in that because there are many people that are incredibly sincere. I've heard Christians say, oh, I'm convicted. Uh, The Muslims pray five times a day. They fast for a month during Ramadan, at least during the daytime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look at that fervor. Look at that zeal. How sad that it's not according to truth. That's not, a, that's not a statement of pride, but rather it says it's a call to each of us to humble ourselves before God and say, you alone are truth. And since you are alone are truth, I must come to you on your terms. I don't dictate the terms. You do. And so that's what Jesus is saying. We must come to him. And so in verse 24, why? Because God is spirit. He's not a building. He's not a thing. He's spirit. Go back to your Westminster Shorter Catechism. First question, the fourth question, what is God? God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, then Jesus closes up by asking, answering another question. Are you greater, membership? Who are you? Are you greater than Jacob? A patriarch? And of course, we reminded him, Later on in chapter 8 of John, Jesus will say, like they'll say, are you greater than Abraham? And and he'll simply say, before Abraham I was. Before Abraham I am. Yeah, I'm greater than Abraham. I was there before Abraham. But here, Jesus said, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. Notice I left off that last word, he. If you look in your translation, it should be italicized. 
basically what Jesus says in Greek is, um, a go and me, the one speaking to you. I am the one speaking to you. He uses here a direct quote of the Greek translation of the Hebrew phrase when God, Moses asked God, how will I tell the people who you are? Uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And what does Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? Amazingly, he tells her he's the Messiah. That's the first, and it's very rare he'll do that. Secondly, he says, he is God. I am. That happened at the burning bush, and I had in mind, remember when, when Moses saw the burning bush, and he said, I'm on holy ground, and he's told, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. I kind of imagined when Jesus spoke those words, I am, I wonder if the bush is all around, thought, should we burst into flame? <laughs> um, what a divine and incredible revelation. To a Samaritan woman, to an outcast Samaritan woman, to an immoral Samaritan woman. He, he tells her, the Messiah is come, and I am the God of the Bible. What an incredible moment in history. What an incredible display of his grace. She started off, are you greater than Jacob? And what's his answer? I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who made all this. I am the eternal one. That's why he says, that's why the expression in Hebrews, I am that I am. He's the, he's the eternal one. I am, he says. Well, we'll see her reaction next time. But every evidence seems to be that she came to saving faith in Christ. She goes running back into the Samaritan town and cries out, Come and meet a man who told me all that I am did. Is he the Messiah? So she's saying, inviting them with a question. She came and said, uh, Sir, give me this water. He did. But the water that satisfies isn't water. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Quickly then, let me just say some things we should learn from this passage. We need to watch this. Don't confuse ritual with worship. Don't confuse ritual with worship. In studying church history, I came across things where there were whole discussions of what's the right way for the priest to hold his fingers when he prays. In Orthodox Church, uh, the right way is he's supposed to put these two fingers together and these two down here. This represents one, two, three. There's the Trinity, and this is the two natures of Christ. Let me know if you find that verse in the Bible. <laughs> you know, a ritual, the right way you hold your hands, ritual, the right way you do this or that. And I'm not saying it, you know, it's wrong to, to, to read a prayer. It's not, I'm not saying it's wrong to, to, to do things. You know, in a sense, lots of things are ritual. 
But don't mistake ritual, because a lot of times people, especially raised in it and familiar with it, it moves their heart deeply. But that does. But don't mis, don't mistake ritual and don't don't mistake emotion. And others will say, "Oh, oh, I, I truly worship. My heart was so moved." Well, maybe you had an emotional response reaction that isn't in and of itself is not worship. Though though true worship should move our heart and should should bring out emotion. But don't confuse and equate emotion should be a, re, a, a fruit of worship. But don't confuse the two. And so lots of people, they become experts in, in how, to, how to orchestrate things so that people have a, an emotional response. Oh, we've worshipped. No, you, you had an emotional response. True worship is, is, a, is a work of the... It's, it's, a fruit of, it's done in the spirit. A born-again, renewed, alive spirit worshiping God who is spirit. And it's done according to God's truth. Um, don't conform, confuse outward conformity or more, even morality with salvation. Some of the cults that are running around, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they like to come and say, look, we have a, we're very moral people. I'm not against morality, but don't confuse morality with um, salvation. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of being born again. True Christianity is a relationship with the living God. It's being born again, born from above, uh, uh, being made alive by the Holy Spirit so that we now have a, a Father in heaven and communing with him and worshiping him and serving him. And... Even though it's not a popular thing to say these things to these days, Jesus Christ was absolutely clear. There's only one way to God. He is the truth, and every other way is false. It is not kindness to leave someone on the path to destruction and error and tell them, well, you're, 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 you're making your best effort. Even Charlie Brown can figure out. Sincerity isn't enough. There has to be spirit and truth. Now, Jesus was masterful, wasn't he, in how graciously, gently, but sincerely he brought the issue to. What is it, the issue? Himself. The one speaking to you is the I am. And he's the only one. But Jesus Christ is the Lord God and he brought us the way to heaven. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Are you counting in your works, in your morality, in a, in a church ritual? Are you a church membership? Acts of service? Or do you have a living and vital relationship with the living God through trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy and grace to this woman. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for recording these words for us that we might see our Lord's heart and learn from his ways. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.